You're listening to Like Flint Radio, part of the Revelations Radio Network. a really special edition of Lightning Radio because not only do we have a great guest, but we also have a new co-host. <laughs> For once, he's asking questions alongside me, and that's Cliff Garner. Hello. <laughs> so, uh, well, uh, I guess you should introduce our guest. We uh, should. Would you like to do that? Sure. <laughs> uh, today we have uh, Brian Gadawa. Uh, he's the author of uh, Noah, what is that? Noah, Noah Primeval. And several other books on the Nephilim. Uh, what is the series called? The Chronicles of the Nephilim. Chronicles of the Nephilim. Yeah, and uh, Brian's uh, Brian's scholarship is uh, impeccable. I, I have to say, uh, I've uh, enjoyed reading his uh, background material and uh, his notes at the end of the books uh, that explain what he's done and why. And uh, Brian is a screenwriter, and I, I'm going to I'm going to call you a polymath like myself. <laughs> to, uh, <laughs> You you have uh, many talents, sir. So thanks for having me. Yeah, it's really it's really great to um, have you join us. And could you tell us a little about yourself? You clearly have an incredible imagination. You have vast amount of creativity, and um, we're going to tap into that a little bit later as we go along. But um, by way of introduction, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to get involved in writing, um, especially screenwriting um, and sure. filmmaking and the visual arts. Well, you know, uh, Cliff, I, I, I don't want to disagree with you. The, I like the term polymath, but I prefer the term renaissance man because <laughs> I'm the artist. So. Right. Yeah. I'll accept that one. I kind of became that way out of, mostly out of necessity as life, you know, tends to, to uh, be a lot harder than you realize and you can't always do the thing you want to do the most, so you have to learn to do other things too and but then those learning those other things really um, sort of makes you a more full in your perspective and, and understanding and such. So it ends up being better for you in the long run. So I actually started out as a graphic artist, a visual artist in college. And I've been a graphic designer for many years. But I always had always loved movies. And, and um, when I was younger, I, I just started out trying to write movies. But I, uh, I was actually... It was it was too hard because it's a a life of solitude. Writing uh, as an author or a screenwriter is a life of solitude, and I couldn't handle it when I was younger. And so I kind of put it aside and focused on my life and getting married. And and once I got married, though, I sort of I don't know I had that companionship and um, partner in life with my wife that allowed me the the freedom to be able to spend that long periods of time in solitude writing right. that I couldn't before. Hmm. And so I did. I started writing on the side, and I did that for many years as I pursued my normal life. And then in about 2001, my first movie, I was, I was writing screenplays because that's what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. my first screenplay got made as a movie called To End All Wars, starring Kiefer Sutherland. And uh, it was the most amazing experience in my life, uh, you know, and, and probably the best movie that I'll ever write <laughs> because it was made independently. And what that meant was we weren't hindered by big studios. We weren't hindered by necessarily all the pressures that a lot of times the bigger movies have. 
Uh, sometimes it's amazing a movie ever gets made, um, and and even with an independent film as well. But you you have more control of the content, and as many people nowadays know, uh, most movies are rewritten over and over again by many different writers. Which is sometimes it it suffers, and sometimes it makes it better. But mostly, a lot of times it makes it suffer. But I was the sole writer on Twin Wars because they couldn't afford anyone else <laughs> to write it. But that experience allowed me to maintain that original authorial vision, as we put it. Uh, right. But but involved a lot of input, a lot of critique, and and help from outside people. But anyway, you know, it went on to to win awards and. From that point on, I tried to, you know, I wanted to be a screenwriter as my sole job, and I quit my day job, and I began screenwriting, but it's been tough, a lot of ups and downs, independent, I've been more in the independent films world than, than say, the studio movies, you know, hmm. um, but then over time, you know, a few years back, I, I, you know, actually had a hard time with income <laughs> when, you know, when the recession <laughs> hit and stuff, right. and many people in Hollywood did, you know, it's not, it's not unusual. But th those couple years really caused me to reevaluate and reinvent myself, and I realized I had to do more than screenwriting if I wanted to uh, keep moving forward because it wasn't quite working just by itself. And and that opened me up to considering producing and directing. And actually, now I'm I'm slated to direct my first movie, which would be a, a found footage horror film, wow. similar to to the Blair Witch Project kind oh. of thing. And I'm slated yeah. to direct that early next year. So that's exciting. But also the other thing that I decided to do was I always wanted to – I always figured, well, I'll, I'll write novels in, in, when I can't make movies anymore. You know, It wasn't something that I really wanted to do, but I thought, you know, well, at least I could, I could write when I can't make movies. I'll write novels. But what happened was I, I had a couple bad years. I thought, well, I might as well start writing now because I may not be able to make movies. <laughs> and uh, I started writing novels a few years back, and the first novel was my, my Noah novel because it actually was originally a screenplay, mm -hmm. and it was a huge screenplay. And, you know, I suddenly heard Darren Aronofsky was making his, his Noah movie, so I realized, oh, you know, uh, he's going to beat me to the punch, so my <laughs> Noah movie's never going to get made. So I had to put it aside, and I thought, well, this story has to get out because it was so fantastic, and I'll, you know, explain that in a minute. But I just realized, well, now's my chance to write the novel because at least I'll get the novel out, and then, you know, maybe the movie will right. actually garner interest in, in buying the novel, too. Who knows? Right. So I went ahead and started right. writing it, but then... I fell in love. I fell in love with writing novels, and, and I'm still making movies, direct documentaries, and even writing features and such, but now I'm also writing novels because I, I, just, I just love it. It's just a, um, it's a great way to get your story out the way you want to get it out because when you make movies, you know, you're, you're on a team and you have to make a lot of changes, and sometimes they're good and sometimes they're bad, and you don't like to have to, you have to bow to, to what the people with power say and the money and all that. But when you're right. writing novels, you know, it's up to you. Uh, and you get your version of the story out. So it's been fantastic. So, I, you know, I, since uh, like four years ago, I've been writing two novels a year. So I've got like uh, my seventh novels coming out this year. And that's the one about David, King David. But, but anyway, the, it's, it's actually, it started out with the book Noah Primeval. And basically what had happened was I had been reading... Um, about this issue about Noah and for the, the movie. And I started researching and I stumbled across this scholar, Michael Heiser. And I read, read his material and he was a scholar who, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a person who, uh, you know, I, I, I believe the Bible is God's word. I have a high regard for it. But 
I'm not like a fundamentalist type who thinks it's all hyper-literal. Everything's got to be hyper-literal because I'm, I'm, I'm a creative and I, when I read the Bible, I can clearly see the imagination that's included, the uh, mythology that's in, involved, and it's a, it's a difficult thing to decide, to understand how those work together. And the more liberal scholars tend to sort of, you know, try to discredit the Bible and just wipe it all away as myth. And, and then a lot yeah. of times the more conservative biblical scholars tend to ignore the difficulty, the, right. the difficult passages, the difficult elements of the Bible, I think because they're afraid that if Christians find out about it, it'll hurt their faith type of thing. Right. And so I find myself somewhere in between where I'm willing to listen to both sides, and I do have a high view of Scripture in the end, you know, so I, I believe the God, in the God of the Bible, but I'm also not afraid to face some of the weird things that are in there. And the weirdest thing in the Bible up at that point in my life, I've since found weirder stuff. <laughs> but the, one of the weirdest passages in the, in the Bible had always been Genesis 6, 1 through 4. Right. And that's where it talks about how before the days of Noah, or in the times of Noah, um, the sons of God, who are, who are basically heavenly hosts in heaven, uh, saw that the daughters of men on earth were beautiful and they took them and, and mated with human women, and they bore them the Nephilim, or the giants, who were great men of renown. And it, this passage is slipped right in there, and then it goes back into the you know description of the days of Noah as being t time of great violence and wickedness on the earth. And most people traditionally think that, oh, you know, man's sin brought, a, brought the flood. Well, it did. But there's more in there than just man's sin, you know, and there's this angelic sin and it's tied in. And, you know, I basically did what most evangelicals do is you just sort of say, oh, that's a weird passage we don't quite fully understand. And you just kind of keep going because there's, you know, there's always things in the Bible you're never going to fully understand. That's okay. But um, by writing, reading Heiser's material, I started realizing, oh, my gosh, I saw – I. He, he started to help me to see, and along with John Walton, another scholar, who, who whose writings – helped me to, to read the Bible through the eyes of the ancient Near Eastern um, context, where I had tended to read it through my own context um, and not realizing how much of it I was interpreting through my own eyes instead of through their ancient eyes. And the more I did that, the more I saw this storyline that, that opened up just beneath the surface. Um, it doesn't contradict what I've known about the Bible. It just fills it out in a, in a deeper way. And it's not some esoteric, um, Gnostic, hidden truth, it's, it's there, it's just we don't see it because we don't have the ancient mindset. And it's this storyline that includes the Nephilim, the giants, that goes throughout the, the, the whole Bible, actually. And it's this underlying storyline about what I call the War of the Seed. And the War of the Seed began back in the Garden, actually, but the, you know, the t days of Noah is when it sort of s first blossoms and, and comes out. And as I studied that more, I realized, oh my gosh, this isn't just a story about no for Noah. This, this is a series of novels. And I started writing, and like I said, I'm on my seventh now. <laughs> right. And, right. And each novel, you'd think, oh my gosh, is it going to be re repetitive? Is it going to... Are you going to lose interest? Are you going to still have, you know, the Noah novel has a lot of fantastic things. What I, what I decided to do was I decided to incorporate a little bit of fantasy into it. And, right. and the reason why was I wanted to show the spiritual warfare side that was going on. And in order to do that, I, had to, I did have to do things like literalize things that are actually metaphors. So, for instance, 
the Bible talks about Leviathan. And if you study Leviathan, I have a paper on Leviathan that, at academia.edu. Mm-hmm. And I explain this. You know, some you know, well-meaning Christians think that that might be a dinosaur or something like that. And it, it isn't. It's a sea dragon. And it's an ancient sea dragon that symbolizes chaos. Right. And, and it's clearly metaphorically used in the Bible. But I literalized it because it makes for a really cool creature in the story, right? I, I do things like that. Because I wanted to show the spiritual reality. It's more like a theological novel as a, rather than like, this is what actually historically happened. Right. But in so right. doing, I add that sort of Narnia-type element to it. And I realized that each of these novels is got amazing, amazing things that the other ones don't. So it's actually, every novel that I write in the series, I keep thinking, oh, I can't get better than this. And then I do the research for the next one, and I go, oh, my gosh, it, there is better stuff. So it starts out with Noah. Then it goes into the – I'll just you know, tell you sure. briefly right. what seven novels are. <laughs> Noah and Evil, you know, it tells the story about Noah. Noah, as you've never seen, this ain't your Sunday school Noah's Ark. You know? um, the, the Bible says Noah became a man of you know, a vineyard. He grew a vineyard, and he became a man of the field after the flood, but it doesn't say what he was before the flood. And I came up with this notion that, well, you know, if the world was as violent and wicked as they say, you would have to be a warrior to really survive. So I used, I made Noah into a warrior like King David or Joshua or whatever. And that, that's kind of a unique take on it rather than this old man with a white beard, you know? And, um, so I, I sort of tell that warrior story and then the second book is Enoch Primordial, which is a prequel to Noah. It goes back before the days of Noah, and you meet people like Methuselah as a young man. And uh, and I bring about, I, I show the origin of the giants and the and the Watchers, the fall of the Watchers that was just referenced in Noah. And then the third book is Gilgamesh Immortal, and that's the story of after the flood, <clears throat> which is Gilgamesh was a famous Sumerian or Mesopotamian hero, myth, mythological, well, probably a historical hero that became mythological. And right. people think, that's not in the Bible, is it? Well, no, but you got to read it because it actually, what the story, the story is very integrated into the Bible and connected in many different ways. And one of those ways is at the end of the story of, of the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is a Mesopotamian story, mm-hmm. um, Gilgamesh right. seeks eternal life and he seeks out Noah who's still alive after the flood. So that kind of is connected there. Then that goes into the fourth book, which is Abraham Allegiant. So what what I decided to do was, I'm jumping periods of time here, and the, and the basis of the series is this. I said I wanted to retell all the stories in the Bible that have giants in them in some way, hmm. or the Watchers, right. and, and how they're connected. So I'll jump 400 years because... You know, for instance, you know, the whole time of Moses in Egypt, there's no real description of any giants or Nephilim. There may have been, but there, there isn't in the Bible. So I jumped that period and, and I move on to the conquest of Canaan with Joshua. Hmm. And then the next right. book after, Abra- I'm sorry, Abraham a legion. During the time of Abraham, most people, again, think of Abraham as this, you know, pastoral shepherd, you know, and he, he was a nomad. But they don't notice that in Genesis 14, there's this chapter that describes Abraham, and it describes these clans of giants that are in the land that these kings come and wipe out. And then it says that, you know, they come and they capture Abraham's nephew, Lot. 
And then Abraham takes 300 of his warriors, and he probably had other guys helping him, but 300 of his warriors, and he goes back and he rescues his nephew Lot from a consortium of five armies. So we're talking Abraham had to have been a warrior to be able to do that. So I also show his warrior side as well. Then, then we jump ahead to Joshua and the conquest of the Holy Land with Joshua Valiant and a, a second book. It's like a two-volume series, Joshua Valiant and Caleb Vigilant. And those books talk about the conquest of the Holy Land and the eradication of the giants. But the Bible says in Joshua 11 that Joshua did not totally wipe out all the giants. He left some of them right. in Gaza and Gath, which are end up being Philistine cities. And guess what? You know, Goliath was not the only giant spoken of in the times of David. There were, there were other giants that were left over in the Philistines that David ended up wiping out completely as the Messiah King. And so that's what my latest novel is coming out November 12th uh, called David Ascendant. And I tell the story about, uh, we can go into more detail, but I'll, I'll, I'll stop there because, you know, I'm talking <laughs> Well, no, just, no, no, no. Yeah, great. this is good. And I mean, let me just say that I mean, you did actually send us a, a little bit of a foretaste of uh, David, and um, I read just a, in fact I've got through five chapters, so I was going to say a little bit, mm. but actually it was a, it was enough to get a good feel of it. And the one thing that I I really enjoyed with that was that you really do show some of the the stark differences between uh, the Philistines and their culture and the Israelites. This was just kind of in the beginning because you start talking about the culture, you start talking about how they probably, the Philistines may have been actually more advanced technologically um, in terms of just that they had bronze and they had iron. Well, is this something that was part of your, your research? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I definitely, thought that was amazing. I research, uh-huh. Yeah, I researched the Philistine culture and we don't really know a lot about it, but you know, the famous... Right. Uh, the, the people are most famous. I read their books, Dothan and uh, a couple others. But anyway, yeah, so, you know, and even the Bible hints at this when it talks about how the Philistines had iron and smithing iron and the Israelites didn't. And so, and plus the Philistines were on the coast and they were trading internationally and they, you know, they had ships and stuff. So they actually were more cosmopolitan. So I bring the point out that in a way they were more culturally advanced than the Israelites. Right. Um, and, you know, in other words, my... You know, I'm not out to make the Bible heroes all look pristine and smart and like uh, like the like the way Christians do in their movies, like God's not dead. You know, where all the Christians are are the great people and the atheists are the bad people. Right. You know, um, I try to show the reality, and that reality sometimes includes uh, the the dark side of our human nature, which I'm also not afraid right. to show the faults of the hero, the biblical heroes, because right. they were sinners and they did, and David was not. He did a lot of dark things, you know, and I'm not afraid to show that because God is bigger than the darkness of the men he chooses to accomplish his tasks. In fact, one of the themes of the book David Ascendant is precisely that God uses sinners to accomplish his holy purposes, right. which is, sounds like a contradiction to the world, but that's, that's in fact the truth because, he's, because you have to understand the nature of grace, which this, the secular world doesn't. Um, to understand how, how it is that God uses these these fallen people to accomplish His purposes. Yeah, 
he certainly was flawed. Right. And I mean, we know that just simply because he wasn't able eventually to build the temple um, mm-hmm. because of some of that. And so I just, I, I find it fascinating because you're interweaving cultural ideas as well. So we're learning that too. And I, I really enjoyed that. So it was also interesting just to see a little bit um, of the uh, sexual deviancy of uh, the Philistines, shall we just put it that way. Uh, I couldn't help but think of uh, Alexander and his um, his companions, if we can put that in air quotes too. Um, and obviously the ancient Greeks would have been very, had a very similar cultural understanding yeah. of homosexuality. Um, it was accepted in many different cultures, and that's kind of a shock uh, to a lot of people who would rather not think about it. But at yeah. the end of the day, I thought that was really interesting that you also brought that in. Thanks. Yeah, I um, I tell people, you know, that ask me, you know, you think, oh, these are books about Bible heroes, right? Uh, so can I get them and read them for my kids? No, you can't actually. They're right. they're rated. I say they're rated PG thirteen. I tell people, well, some people think they're R rated, but I'd say they're PG thirteen. The the right. I have I do show a lot of. Bu- of sex and violence in them. Why? Because the Bronze Age and the Iron Age, like in this case, we're talking about the Iron Age, they were very brutal times. And in order to, you know, my argument has always been that, you know, the Bible itself is R-rated in some locations, in some places. And, you know, I say, oh, yeah. look, I have sexuality. It's as it's about as frank as as you might get in um, in the book Song of Solomon, where it's very clearly, I, I have scenes that have this stuff going on because you got to know what, you know, the Bible says it was very wicked and evil. You have to have an understanding of that. But I don't always go into hyper detail as right. well. You know, I try right. to just right. so. a little bit poetic. And then the violence as well. You know, this is a very violent time. And God used violent men and had to use violence in a violent world. And so I try to show some of that without being too grotesque as well. But right. the reason why is I've always made this argument that, you know, the, the power of the redemption in your story Stories about redemption, you know, if you follow the journey of the hero and what they learn and, and all that, it's basically the story of redemption. And um, the power of the redemption of your story is only as good as the power of the evil that you portray from which you're being redeemed. So if, if I don't accurately deal with the evil of that time period, you're not going to see the power of God's redemption. So I try to find balance in there and be respectful towards, you know, uh, religious sensibilities, but I also decide, you know, we got to show, we got to talk about the stuff that was going on there because it was very much a part of that reality. Well, I find that the way you handled the sex and violence was uh, actually quite good. It, it wasn't graphic. You stated the fact, and uh, I think you handled it very well. Oh, thanks. Uh, yeah. well, well, you know, that's the thing. I, I mean, you're not writing Saw, you know, <laughs> yeah, where exactly. you're and watch all this gore coming out, uh, and, and there's no point in making it into that. Uh, I think that for a Christian book, you did it just the right way. I mean, you mentioned the fact of it, it's there, and uh, it's part of the record now, but it, it it's yeah. not something that we're sitting there indulging in like some kind of a, right. a you know, really bloody, nasty movie or something. Right. I think that's good. I, I, I like the way you did that. Right. The fact of the matter is that like you say, those times were gory. We can't think of Nephilim um, as, if, if we're going to look at the account as it's kind of portrayed in more detail perhaps in one Enoch, and think of what they did. <laughs> they, yeah. they not only were just incredibly destructive, um, they were very bloodthirsty, they were eating 
pretty much anything they could find to eat. Um, so this is not a pretty story, right? <laughs> so yeah, yeah. It's PG. I'd say it's PG thirteen. So you know, right. yeah. young kids, it's yeah, not going to be good. Sure. But but if you if you have a mature, you know, teen or something like that. Yeah, I under you know they they might actually really like it. You know, it's probably like the Hunger Games or something. You know, I mean, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you know, that's probably a pretty good comparison. Outside, of the, some of the violence in the Hunger Games in the book is a little more dwelled upon. I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But but I I, I think you handled it a little better. I think uh, I think it's we know what happened. It's not like we have to see the details where the eyeballs roll. Right. <laughs> That, Although I do have uh, some rolling was, heads uh, sometimes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there, there is, there is some description, but but it's not like you dwell on it like something yeah. like that. But, I think yeah. the other thing the, that I, I really just, uh, sorry, Tiffany, I'm just cutting me. Well, go ahead. <laughs> sorry about that. Um, the other thing that That's I was going to say is it's quite a fast-paced story. You know, as you go through it, I often do think it's like seeing a movie um, because you kind of cut from scene to scene in a way and so you know it's let's go here and now we're going back to the other side of that story and and I rather like that I, I could visually maybe it's because I am a visual person and so you, you really do kind of uh, keep that alive and I really enjoyed that. That's a good point you, what you bring up because um, that's actually deliberate uh, and, and here's here's the thing about that um, I'm a, I come from a screenwriting background screenwriting is a lot tighter of a form it's mm-hmm. more abbreviated, it's shortened, and it's action-paced, right? And so I come with that experience, and I I don't like reading long, lumbering books with, you know, huge, detailed inner monologues. You know, you got to have a couple here and there, but, sure. you know, I'm not into that, you know, hyper-detail. Even like Game of Thrones, you know, right. like the books Game of Thrones, it's it's just too much detail. I, wanna, I want fast-paced, so I thought, you know what? I'm going to write a novel in such a way that it, when you read it, it feels like you're watching a movie because that's my background. Right. And I, I thought that, and, and I've, I think that more of that is happening nowadays as more screenwriters, like for instance, the writer of The Hunger Games it was a screen, is a screenwriter. And there are more screenwriters who are doing that, where we're bringing our craft of screenwriting into the novel world and sort of bringing a new style. And I do think that it's much more fast-paced and, and much more action-oriented. And our writing in movies, because it's not as interior, we have to show through what's happening, and more importantly, through the moral choices and actions of the characters is how you, you right. really show who a person is. And that's better storytelling than just saying, well, here's what he was thinking, so you know it. Right. And so I think I try to bring right. that to the package as well. Yeah, well, well, I've written a couple of plays myself, and uh, and I, I took a class in uh, playwriting. And one of the things that I noticed, and, and it, this this probably goes to your experience as well, is that you don't have to have the character say a lot of certain things because the the actor will portray those those emotions very clearly with his face. So the the minimum, the the economy of words, is it, rather important in that respect because. That's real life. Yeah. You know, it, when, when, you, when you're sitting there talking to your friend, you just look at their face and you know what they're thinking sometimes. Yeah. yeah. No, we can true. do this also with, with characters that uh, are well written in, in, uh, in movies as well. And we just look at them and we know what they're thinking. It, it, yeah. it's, it's like there's some universal 
almost uh, like a shorthand that we just automatically pick up on. Yeah, whether, you know, like you could see the irony, someone can say something, sure. but you look at his face and he means the opposite, and and you no. can't, re- you have to, it's a little bit harder to describe that in the novel, you do have to go into a little bit more interior or be more descriptive right. on the outside, absolutely. Right. Right. Yeah, you don't have to have all this dialogue, it's not like uh, the Shakespeare characters where it's like, oh, now we go forth to do our dastardly deeds. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you, you, you don't need to do that. In fact, in fact, people don't talk like that. Was he was being funny. And, but you and, know, something else that movies have have done is they've made us more sophisticated storytellers. I think because, you know, you look at the pacing of a movie today, even a slower movie like, say, The Judge, which is just a human drama. You know, and you compare it to a movie from twenty, thirty years ago, and you see our storytelling and story viewing skills are a lot more sophisticated so it allows us to make bigger jumps with things it allows us to you know again be more fast-paced and make the point and keep moving rather than showing all the details that they used to have to show and i think the, right. the same can be true of novels you know we can we can assume certain things we don't have to explain everything out you know right and perhaps yeah. for those who like to have that level of detail there is the other side to what you've done, and that is the scholarship of it, because you have got appendices um, in every book. You've got your research. You've put a lot of just uh, background information on how you've arrived at various things in each book. And so I kind of feel we, on one hand, it is fast-paced for those who like that and can enjoy that. For the other who wants to actually try to go, hang on a minute, where do you get that from? you have got the background and the research, and that is also um, probably one of the most amazing parts of what you've done, I think. Uh, do you want to let us know a little bit about that? Yeah, good question, questions. You're good. Oh, You're good. thanks, man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah what, what I did was, there's, there's two elements to that. One is, one of my personal favorite novelists of all time has been Michael Crichton, and I always appreciated about Michael Crichton is that at the end of his novels, he would put an appendix where he would just sort of talk a little bit about the real science research that he did that his fiction was based on. And I always appreciated that. I liked that, you know. So a lot of novels said, oh, don't do that. It it mucks it up. We just want to read the story. But I like that. So I thought, well, you know what? That might be a cool idea. And then secondly, to be quite honest, I started writing this series, and I knew I was going to be – I was going to push the envelope. Like I said, I was going to incorporate a little bit of fantasy and meld it theologically with the you know the biblical story and I knew that my dominant audience was going to be people who love the Bible so I realized you know these people tend to be pretty picky nitpicky about if you know if you do something that's not in the Bible you know um, I don't think they're as bad as the as some people say but nevertheless you know because they hold the Bible in high regard if they see stuff they've never thought of they're going to think this is really freaky. I don't like this. And so I wanted to explain the fact that before you, you know, get too afraid of this stuff, you know, I wanted you to realize that it's actually what I'm doing is based on actual ancient biblical and historical research. And it's rooted in something very, you know, it's, it's rooted in something real and in something, you know, in research basically. And, and so I thought for those, for those who really might have a harder time understanding the imaginative approach I was using, I thought they might also appreciate the 
the more Bible study stuff, you know, because that's, like I said, that's how Christians and, you know, religious people are. They do like that stuff more. So I put it in there for both of those people. And I've ended up getting a lot of comments from people that are saying things like, you know, I love the appendix, the appendix as much as I love the the novel. And so I thought, oh, well, that's that's good to hear because that's kind of why I did it. And then so what I did was um, I decided to take all the appendices out of all the novels separately because there's a one in each of the novels. And I put them all together in one new book called When Giants Were Upon the Earth. Right. And that's that's also available on Amazon. And then I added a couple new chapters that are not in in the other novels, like a chapter on the Book of Enoch. And I extended a couple of the appendices that I got out of the novel so that you're getting a little bit more. And When Giants Were Upon the Earth is actually selling really well because people are really loving it. Because it's not just a bunch of, you know, appendices from different books thrown together. They are Again, there's a storyline to the theology that's going on here. So when you put them all together, you see the theological thread rather than just the narrative thread. And I think um, so it, it, it works as, a, as its own book uh, that's more focuses on just the theology of it. And yeah, so that's, yeah. That, that's been a, a delightful surprise. I didn't realize how much people would really love it. Uh, you know what it probably is is also just because um, there's so much out there on like we spoke about it a little earlier, but just how perhaps the, the Nephilim theme has, you know, emerged. And, and so the, it's almost gone to the fringe in many aspects. But I, I really appreciate just the sound uh, academic side of it because I think for anybody, just like you say, for anybody who might be looking at this and going, oh, my goodness, this person is taking so much liberty with what we hold in such high regard – being the Bible, and you know, it's it's just so different. So how how does he arrive at some of this? I think it's really grounding for them, and it helps to just right. you know help them kind of go, okay, I, I get where he's coming from. We can let the fantasy side be there where it is, but um, also have the grounding. And I just think it's a really good way to do it. And you know, my argument is that what I'm doing in incorporating fantasy is not all that different from what the Bible itself is doing. In the ancient world, uh, they, they used a lot more metaphor and, and picturesque notions to communicate their theology than we do. And I'm not saying it's all myth. What I'm saying is, even when they're describing no. a historical no, no. event, they'll weave in uh, imagination. So, for example, I mentioned this earlier. Uh, when you read, there's passages that talk about when if you look at the if you look at the passages where the word Leviathan shows up, you'll find that some of them in the Psalms and elsewhere, mm-hmm. they're describing. For instance, they're describing the uh, crossing of the Red Sea, the Exodus. I think it's in Psalm 73 that talks about this, but um, you know, it's describing God's covenant with His people. And it's connected to the Exodus. And while he's describing them crossing the waters, it describes how God crushes the heads of Leviathan in the waters while they're passing through. And if, again, if, you know, what you said is we think all this stuff is is not in the Bible, but it is because we don't notice it. But what I'm saying is they're using this notion that's in the ancient world that when a God establishes his nation or his covenant people, whether it's Hammurabi and Babylon or Ugarit in Canaan, 
they all have their stories and myths that describe the god conquering the sea and conquering the sea dragon. And so it's no surprise when we see them describing poetically the notion of the Exodus and God's new covenant, God's crushing the sea dragon of chaos, Leviathan. He's pushing back the chaos to establish his covenant order. And that's how they, they integrated these fantasy images of Leviathan with historical, in a, with historical reality in a poetic way. Right. So in a very real sense, I'm actually saying, look, folks, the ancients did this, and it's up to us to, to, to you know, understand it and figure it out. I still think the Bible's historical. I'm not saying the Bible's mythological. I'm just saying the way that they tell history is very different in the ancient world, yeah. and maybe all our assumptions that we take to the text yeah. are not as fair or true to the original text and we are the ones who are imposing our own views on it. So our goal is to understand it through the ancient eyes. Right. But wait, right. you were saying, I think I got off on a tangent. I'm sorry. You brought up, <laughs> oh, I wanted to, uh, I wanted to express something. Do you, ah, I forgot. Uh -huh. the do you remember question. it? No. Did, did you want to say something there, Cliffy, in the meantime? We can, we can always come back to it, though, Brian, if you think of it. I think one of the things that... Uh, I think people should know is that uh, when we talk about myth, there's many possible meanings we could be using for it. But when we actually think about it, uh, what a lot of our own personal understanding of the Bible is, is myth mythic. Uh, yeah. For example, with the story of David and Goliath, uh, we, we have this, this image of Go David being small and Goliath being huge. And David's a boy that uh, takes him out and cuts his heads off, you know, and, and, and this is a myth. Uh, it, is it true? Yes, it is true. But we have this story that we, are, we know by memory, and, it, and it's been told to us before and, and again and again and again, and we have told it ourselves. And what you're doing is that you are, uh, you are actually working with the myth that exists, and you're working with the material that exists within the book. So, so you, you have kind of a double-layered uh, approach, I'm sure. Yeah in which you're, yeah. you're examining it from a textual perspective, and you're, you're examining it from a mythic perspective as well. And with the imaginative portions of, your, of what you're doing, is you're, you're taking the research that you've added to this and injecting it into the story. Correct me if I'm that's wrong. A, that's a very good point, Cliff. That's, that's excellent. That's exactly right. That, and that's, that's what I'm trying to say. And, and I think that... that yeah. Oh, so, so what I was getting at with, with Andy, too, was that... Yeah, we, we look at this and we think, oh, this is different. This isn't in the Bible. But really what I'm saying is there's more of it that's in the Bible than you realize if you understood it from their eyes. Right. And maybe a lot of our own assumptions are the, are the incorrect myths, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. A exactly. classic example of this, exactly. where, where you, which you just indicated, Cliff, and it's relevant to the new book, David Ascendant, which is available on Amazon.com on November 12th. Um, <laughs> and you can pre-order it. <laughs> you can pre-order it right now. When I don't know when I don't know when you're going to be putting this on the on on the on the web, but yeah, you can pre-order it right now. <laughs> Good. Uh, but that's another example of a myth that we have. Like for instance, our mythic understanding of David, and it's not false, okay, but it's become this sort of like he's the example of how our faith can help us conquer the giants in our lives that seem impossible to overcome. Sure. And while I'm, I'm not going to deny that there, that's, that can be a certain element to it, I don't think that that's actually the, the original mythic intention of the text. If you study the notion of Messiah in the Old Testament, 
and you realize how it's connected to the New Testament as well in Christ, what you really find is, I think that the original mythic intent there was, look at the thing you're not looking at. We see ourselves as the David fighting the Goliath, but I don't think that's what the intent was. We are the armies of Israel, really. We are the ones who are standing back too afraid, standing watching our Messiah, who in a very real sense, that's Christ is the one who conquers death, who conquers the Goliath, right? He conquers the seed of the serpent. He conquers, um, you know, our enemy. And we are the ones Mm -hmm. who sit back and benefit from his glorious accomplishment. You see what I'm saying? So the notion that's going on, the mythic notion there is that the Messiah conquers the the seed of the serpent on our behalf. So in a very real sense, that's the mythic intention to its original readers, I think. Again, I'm not saying that you can't draw from it that we can conquer the giants through faith, of course, but but, uh, that's a good example that I try to bring out. What's, What's the original context how they saw it back then and that's that's kind of my argument there right and i think i mean this actually brings up a very good point ryan because well let's just say this leads on to another point but it's it's related and that's where you talk about you know that the messiah is that that main theme throughout this what jesus does at the end is the main theme you know, it's the redemption story through this. And I think, you know, for me personally, um, when I first came across some of the work of uh, uh, someone like Dr. Michael Heiser, where he was talking about, you know, at the Nephilim, this is something I'd never, ever learned um, at all. Throughout all my Christian walk with the Lord, I'd never learned any of this. But when I first kind of heard about it, I think that was the most outstanding point of everything was that it filled in so many gaps for me in yes. why it was so important for what Jesus had to do. What happened yes. and why, at the end of the day, this is just such an incredible thing that Jesus did for us. And for me, it just, it just solidified my faith. It just made it so much stronger because all these gaps somehow got filled in. You know what I'm trying to say? <laughs> Amen. I remembered now what I wanted to address, and, and this is all connected with what you're saying. You were mentioning earlier about the, the sort of what I call the Nephilim nuts, or, you know, this sort of like, there's a, it's a real fad these days to get right. into the Nephilim because there's a rising interest, and there's a lot of people that get in into all the end times and all this stuff, and I'm not really in the, that camp, right. but, um, but you're right. What the heart of this is not what some new bizarre thing in the Bible that can be, you know, that we can then point to the world, look, you didn't know about this bizarre truth and it's connected to the future and it's gonna, everything's going to go to pot and all this kind of stuff. Rather, what you said connected with you is also connected with me, and that was <clears throat> the storyline of <clears throat> what I call the War of the Seed, and it is ultimately the Messianic story that begins in Genesis 3.15 in the Garden, where um, God's cursing a serpent, and he basically says, you know, I will put enmity or war, basically, between your seed and the seed of the woman, and that scholars tell us that that's the first messianic promise, because the seed singular of the woman is actually Messiah, not just the plural seed, the people of God, but there's still this sort of like people of God versus the people of Satan, and that is the theme that, that what scholars call Christus Victor, and Christus Victor is one of many storylines in the Bible, but it's 
particularly, it focuses on this notion of how this, you look at the Bible and you see that there's a certain story that talks about how um, mankind was meant to be in family with God, meant to be his, his very family, and because of the fall in the garden, we're separated. But there's a sense in which the Satan and his minions, or the fallen watchers, become... God gives them authority to these pagan fallen watchers. He gives them authority over the nations of the, of the earth. And this is, you know, this is spoken of in Deuteronomy 30, uh, verses 8 through 11, I think. And 32, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 11... And it talks about how because all mankind has become, in, become fallen and at the Tower of Babel this happens, he, he sort of gives the authority of mankind, sinful mankind, into the, underneath the authority of these fallen angels as false gods, right? But then God says, but I will save a people for myself, Jacob, and I will be their angel. I will be their territorial authority. So right. I have these territorial authorities that over the nations, and there, the ancient mindset was whatever happened on earth was very much intimately connected to heaven, and not you know kind of a kind of a platonic way, but not fully. Meaning, the temple on earth was connected intimately to the temple in heaven that they believed. And so there's a there's a temple in heaven. All ancient, not just the Jews, but all the ancient people believed that the temple on earth was connected to the temple in heaven. But not only that. But the, the, the authorities of earth, the human authorities, the physical earthly authorities, were also ruled over by spiritual authorities. And so what happened on earth was a reflection of was ha- was what was happening in heaven. Thus, you have this notion of these spiritual wars that are going on that wow. we get glimpses of in the Bible, whether it's wow. Elisha's servant being open to see the chariots, you know, or, um, or you hear this notion of by the time of the New Testament, you see Satan is the god of this world. And so, what does that mean? You know, what does that mean? And well, if you if you see the storyline, you see no, by that time Satan, you know, well, I go into that in the next book, Jesus Triumphant. I don't want to get too far ahead right. of myself. But so, but nevertheless, this this war between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman is this war this spiritual war that Christ becomes the conqueror of. So these Christ conquers the authorities and the principalities and powers that Paul talks about. Christ is that conqueror as Messiah, but before he does right. come, there are these resonating threads, and if you think about it, David was a Messiah, which means anointed one. It doesn't just mean Christ, it means anointed one, and he was the anointed one to save Israel, so he was Messiah, but he was the forerunner of the ultimate Christ, who was the son of David, right? right. So the David story right. itself, getting back to my newest novel, which is now available on Amazon, <laughs> Um, the, the David novel is about this Messiah conquering the war, the last of the the seed of the serpent, which is symbolized by these giants. And after David, you don't hear anything more about giants. And so, what I do in, in the story of David, and this is, you know, I'm going to explain real quickly the storyline because. I came at the story of David Ascendant and thinking, oh, how am I going to pull this off? Because everybody knows the story of David. It's the most detailed biography in the, in the Bible. Everybody knows it. Goliath, David and Goliath is boring because it's so cliched now. How am I going to make it interesting? But what happened was I found out researching that Goliath was not the only giant that was after David. Hmm. There are passages in Samuel and, and, and Chronicles that describe 
five other giants who were hunting David. Wow. And they even name, like two of them, one of them is named Saf and the other one is named Ishbibinob, or Ishbibinob. And it describes how David's mighty men actually, how these guys were going after David and these mighty men stopped them. They killed them. Hmm. So in a very real sense, and oh, by the way, a, a third one was, his name was Lami and he was the brother of Goliath. Wow. So you have this whole revenge yep. storyline that's clearly got to be in there, right? Hmm. Now, look, it's very imaginative take on it because all we hear is basically like two long paragraphs and they just basically describe this giant was after David and this mighty man stopped him. Right. And that's basically all we know. So what I did was I said, well, I'll give each of these guys a history and I'll describe the Philistine background. I'll give, you know, I'll make up a story that's consistent with the text, but, you know, much, you know, bring in a lot of interest. So I tell the story of all these five giants as well, six actually. I also still tell the story of Goliath. But, of course, once Goliath is dead in, the, in near the beginning, these other five guys go after David, and they're assassins. And this is not completely made up because there's actually scholarship that you can get in the appendix that explains how they may have been part of a military cult called the Yelid Harafa. Uh, in the Bible, it's translated sometimes as descendant of the giants, but it actually might have more of a cultic dimension to it. But the point is, is that these are the last, these symbolize the last of those giants who are after David. And by him and his men killing those, and it says David and his men killed those giants, that symbolizes how Messiah destroys the seed of the serpent in the land of, of Canaan, which is now the land of Israel and God's people, see? But of course, that doesn't fully end there because the Messiah himself in, in Christ has not come yet. Right. And, uh, but my point there is just, that's the story I chose to tell. And for the women in the, in the audience, fear not, I admit this is, I'm a guy, I, it's, you know, I love Braveheart, that's my favorite movie, uh, <laughs> so it's very Braveheartish. But don't forget Braveheart 2 had some romance, and so I actually thought, to me, even as a guy, I got to admit, I don't want to read a bunch of battle scenes, because those get boring. I, I'm really interested in the human drama, so I actually have not one, but two of David's romantic entanglements with his first wife, Michal, or Michal, and his second, uh, third wife, Abigail. I tell those stories, and I bring in the romance of what he goes through. But not only that, but, you know, he was a polygamist, so there's trouble that comes from that. Oh, so I tell a little bit about that story. And then I also tell a love story of, of Ittai the Gittite, so that you can sort of see the Philistine side of things and how Ittai the Gittite ended up converting to Israel and becoming one of the mightiest warriors for David. Hmm. So I, again, we don't know anything about Ittai personally, so I made up a story about it, but it's consistent. And that's kind of what I chose to do, is to give, go into the Philistine side so we can understand that world, but then also show this story of, you know, I focused on the giants who were after David and then a little bit about his romance. So that's, that's my unique take. So actually, the story ends before... Everyone thinks, oh, David and Bathsheba, right? Well, my story finishes before that. So I tell the early years of David, hmm. and I even go back, you know, when Goliath was a youth. So that's kind of where... I, that's, mm -hmm. that's how my unique take on the story is. I don't think it's ever been done before, and I think people are going to be really amazed by it. Wow, well, that's it's really cool being able to go and tell these stories. I mean, I know I, w I was chatting to uh, Cliff a little earlier about, um, you know, we, we were talking about how there are other authors that have used 
similar ideas, like your C.S. Lewis, like your J.R.R. Tolkien, um, and um, I'm just trying to think who the other one was now. I can't think of the top of my head. I think more like Tolkien uh, right. in, in your case, right. that you're using the, uh, the, the as the raw material. And, and which is yeah. more like Milton with Paradise Lost and Sense and Agonistes, yeah. which also, and, and I think you've noted noted this for for the audience that uh, this does put you in a position to where your research becomes very important into it. Well, I, I, I don't want to say that it's it's a, it's a limitation in that it limits what you can use with your imagination, but it is a limitation with how you can you can manipulate your your, your uh, material. Absolutely. You channel it in, in a more direct way. Well, it takes form much quicker, I think. Cliff, um, uh, you, you bring up another good point that I want to address, and that is all storytelling, even, even retelling a Bible story, even the Bible stories themselves engage. If you, right. if you compare the book of Chronicles against Samuel, you're going to see that there's del- very deliberate uh, um, oh, alterations. Yeah in the story to make a theological point. So by necessity, all storytelling does pick and choose and you know alter to a certain degree. But you're right. I I did say my basic rule was I can look, I can combine characters, I can leave out characters, I can telescope time, right. I can move some events around. But my basic goal was I still want to stay consistent with what is in the text as much as possible. I don't want to just say, oh, I don't like that, so I'll make something different. But that becomes a creative challenge rather than a limitation because the best creative, I'm telling you, not from my own experience, but all the writers will tell you this, creativity comes from limitations and boundaries. It's not like, you know, in our modern secular world, it's like we think freedom is do whatever you want. No way. When you've got a limitation, then that forces you to be more creative to find a solution. And that's what happened with me because at first I started out thinking, Oh, if I violate, the, if I go against the Bible in any way, I'm going to get crucified by the religious people who say, oh, he's changing the Bible. But as, as I went on, I realized, <laughs> no, by trying to stay as true as I can, it's not about pleasing them so much as seeing the creative limitation or the limitation that becomes a creative challenge. And by, by being consistent with the text, I could fill in between the text with all kinds of made up stuff. And, and that was the fun thing. And then what happened is I found by doing that, it ended up creating the story that was way bigger than I thought, and I saw connections in the Bible I never saw before. And, and that's sure. what was so exciting about it. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. That really is kind of what I see. I, I've also seen that in some of the things I've done, which I haven't published yet, but, uh, but yeah, that uh, the freedom that you get from actually working out the problem actually exceeds the freedom that you was spurned by limiting yourself to what what you really need to stay with. Yeah. Uh, I also see that Milton in a very big way. And, uh, and one of the things that uh, that I learned, and a lot of people say, oh, Milton, you know, he's a Satanist. Well, no, he's not. You know, this is, this is <laughs> the mythology that that has been done to, to him since uh, Blake. And Blake wanted to make him into more of a di- di- diabolical kind of person. Uh, see, what, what, what happens to Milton is, is that he, he does such a good job at, at putting words into the devil's mouth that we think that he's aligned with the devil. Right. No, he's not. 
Yeah. What, what, what it is is that people like the devil because they have a tendency to like the devil anyway. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so, yeah. so, so there's, there's this, this opposite kind of thing. And, and so when, when they don't see the Holy Spirit as a character in the story, they assume that he is not a Trinitarian. Well, that's not necessarily the case because in the story, he invokes the Holy Spirit to move through him as he tells the story. The Holy Spirit cool. is him in the narrative. Cool. Yeah. 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 And, well, I, and that, that's because the Spirit is speaking through him. And, and, and the, this is the kind of thing that, uh, that can actually work into your favor if, if, you, if you accept it, <laughs> right? Like, like well, Mission Impossible. A, a, a good example of this is, is what I did with, well, okay, in my, in my novels, Joshua Valiant, and Caleb Vigilance, mm-hmm. The Conquering of the Holy of Canaan by Joshua. One of the things that it talks about is it mentions the name, it mentions three names of mighty Anakim giants in the land, Ahiman, Sheshai, and Talmai. And if you look at some of the legends, some people believe Ahiman was the biggest, the most powerful one. So they say that they are the sons of Anak, um, and mm-hmm. the Anakim were giants. And so Anak is a predecessor of them, and we don't know anything about them, but one thing the Bible says is, and Anak was the son of Arba. Kiriath Arba was this city whose king was Arba, who was basically, in, in, in Joshua and in, in Numbers, we find out that his son was Anak, and then Anak's descendants ended up becoming the Anakim, right? Well, if you look at that, it doesn't tell us anything more. But if you look at the time period, it's possible over the generations that King Arba, out of which all those Anakim came, roughly could have been living around the time of Abraham. And so I realized, oh my gosh, maybe, and Abraham, by the way, lived a lot of his time in Canaan in, by the Oaks of Moray, which is two miles from the city Kiriath Arba. And so uh, it's very possible that he had interaction with King Arba. And so I, I, in my story, okay, it's, it's speculation, it's imagination, but I, uh, in my story, I tell about that and how they became at war with one another, which ex- ends up giving a little bit of understanding of why the Anakim were so violently against the Israelites, because they have a past. It's like a feudal war, right? Now, that's, it's speculation, uh, but it, it helps make sense of something. God's not just going into the land and just kill all these people and kick them out. No, there's right. a history to them. And so I, I bring that in. And, and I do the same thing in the book David Ascendant. You know, the Bible doesn't tell us anything about Goliath's past, but some scholars believe that, or let's put it this way, scholarship is not sure of when the Ark of the Covenant was stolen by the Philistines. There's different dates, right. and they're not sure because it's not clear. So it's possible that the Ark of the Covenant could have been stolen while Goliath was still a young man, maybe even in the military. So I make him be the one who steals the Ark. Now, that's speculation on my part, but it gives a past to... And then, of course, we, you know, we know about the story about how the Ark was brought to Gaza and Gath, and God cursed them with a plague until they got rid of the Ark, right? And so yeah. I, I build that into Goliath's past, so that there's this personal vengeance and, and enmity that Goliath really hates this God of Israel, and he really wants to wipe them out. Right. So when he comes up as the champion and, and curses you know, Israel, 
it, it rings with more of a past to it rather than just this arbitrary warrior stepping out. You see what I'm right. saying? So that, right. but, but it's all consistent with what really is in the Bible text. And that, that right. was how the creative, or that's how the limitation helped me come up with some creative connections. Sure, sure. Well, well there's a, I'll give you an example that I, I noticed when I was in Turkey. Um, when I when I went up to uh, Shanlirfa, which uh, uh, some of us think may have been the actual or the Chaldees, because it's next door to uh, Haran. Oh right, and, right. Uh, yeah, and, and it's in Mesopotamia. And it's actually yep. in Mesopotamia, yep. and and I went there uh, because of Gebekli Tepe, uh, which is the uh, they say it's the oldest temple in the world, cool. and, uh, and and there's some other things about it that are pretty neat. But but there's there's a lot of legends uh, over there, and, and and these legends are the kind of thing that I think kind of illustrate what myth it is. Uh, you have uh, legends of Job that he was supposedly from there, and yeah. you have legends uh, also of uh, Abraham, and uh, the, the legends of Abraham are, are probably the most extensive. But they also yeah. have legends of Nimrod, yeah, and the possibility. And people have talked about this. The possibility is that Abraham was alive at the time of Nimrod as being yep. king. And they have a legend there that Abraham would not bow to Nimrod as worship him as, as a god on earth. And because he would not do that, uh, and, and he has stated before him, I, I will worship no other god than the true god above all gods, Yahweh. So he prepared a fire for him. And there's a tall peak in, in which there was a fortress at one time upon it. Uh, you can still see a couple pillars up there. And he took him to the top of the, the peak and he set a huge fire down below. And it was, a, it was like an oven. And it was just a huge bonfire. And he said, worship me. And he said, I shall not. And so he said, very well. And he throws him over the side. And he, as he's falling to the uh, fire, the Lord changed the fire into water. And all the, the, burning, uh, the burning sticks that were down there were changed into fishes. <laughs> so when Abraham fell to the pond, which is now a pond, it's not an oven any longer, he, he was in water and he swam away and escaped him. <laughs> and to this day, they, 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 the Turks call it balaklagul, which means wow. fish leg. And they, they also have a, a, a legend about a... If another fish, uh, I think it's a white fish. If you ever catch a white fish out of the pond, there's some kind of a blessing that goes with that. But it, it, it's supposedly uh, Nimrod's daughter who defied Nimrod, and he threw her after after him <laughs> over the cliff, and she became a fish. Oh my! Cliff, you're you're gonna love this. Um, in my in my book, Abraham Allegiant, I do mm-hmm. use I use the legends of Abraham that. Not the one, not the particular one you're referring to, but there are others right. that are in Ginsburg's oh, yeah, Legends of the Jews, and there's also one in the yeah, book of Jasher, and I incorporate those, and I do have Abraham at the time of Nimrod, and Nimrod becomes a character in my series that kind of goes on further than you realize, and there's there's some speculation that he may have been one of the one of the connected to one of yeah, the five the kings of, of Mesopotamia, yeah, yeah. actually. So, right. uh, yeah, so I incorporate those in the Abraham Allegiance. So oh. I kind of sometimes think that my novels are novels for, the, for theologians or novels that scholars would love because right. I, I, I draw from all the legends because, look, these guys, you know, 
there's a lot of creativity that went before me, and I don't I don't make I make up very little in my stories. I'm actually drawing from many legends and many sources and just sort of incorporating it in an imaginative way to sort of tell the story and fill in between the lines of the Bible right. with material that other people have sort of come up with in the past that we're not familiar with. And it makes for exactly. fascinating storytelling, but it's really rooted in, in, like you said, rooted in those ancient texts that, you know, academics and scholars would love as well as the average uh, reader. Right. Well, that's that's why I love your notes at the end. I I, I find those those really, really interesting and well written too. I, I I love the research you've done. Now, there there's one particular one that I really not too familiar with, and it's that Chaos Kampf. Oh, Chaos Kampf. Yeah. 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 My my pronunciation wasn't probably the best. Chaos Kampf was actually a, a, a term German, you know, and some scholars believe that. The Bible is heavily influenced by Babylonian because they believe uh, Babylonian stories because they believe that it, a lot of the Bible is written after the exile from Babylon. I don't necessarily think that that's actually true. I do think that there's editing and there's influence, but I don't think it was all written at that point in time. Nevertheless, uh, he made right. this theory that I think is a little bit too aggressive and most people don't always agree with it nowadays. But the notion was um, chaos comf is this notion that the God, it, it means chaos, and Kampf is right. battle. So it's the battle of chaos. Right. And it's this notion that the gods have a battle. Most creation narratives, not just Babylon, but most creation narratives describe, um, <clears throat> or, or creation narratives or, or uh, creation of, of nation narratives, if that makes sense, mm. uh, they describe right. the god as battling with the sea or, or battling with... Um, the sea dragon, and Babylon has that. The sea dragon was actually a goddess called Tiamat, and mm. and um, Marduk kills Tiamat because no none of the other gods could. He rips her in half, and that creates right. his, creates the earth and the and the sky. Mm. But this is all covenantal language, and so the um, what's his name, Gunkel, Gunkel, pointed <laughs> this out and said that's where the Bible got the notion. But since then, they've discovered oh no, there's there's actually a chaos comf myth in Ugarit, which seems to have a, a larger influence on the biblical understanding, and it's more yeah. it's closer to the whole to uh, Israel, right? And the Ugaritic one is Baal. Baal, the storm god, uh, overcomes yeah. the sea god and the river god, so to speak, and he yeah. he vanquishes them and he kills. Guess what? The name is Leviathan mm -hmm. in, in right. Ugarit. It's Lotan, but Baal kills right. Leviathan, the sea dragon. And this is a notion of their God establishing <clears throat> their covenanted order as well, so to speak. And it goes on and on. There's other, most nations have this. So it's this notion of battling. Well, as I mentioned before, the Bible has this notion of chaos come in there. It's undeniable. It's in poetic passages. Mm -hmm. However, interestingly, Genesis 1 does not have that. And I think yeah, that there's... Yeah, that's what I was wondering. I believe, and this I got from John Walton, I think John Walton's the guy to read on this, his book um, Genesis on Genesis 1 and stuff. It's fantastic. But right. I think there's a polemic going on there. In some passages, like in Psalms, they're using the imagination of their time period, just like, look, I'm a Christian, and if I write a vampire story to communicate my values, I'm using the imagination of the modern era, and I'm subverting it or using it for my own meaning. Well, in the same right. way, the Jews did that. So they 
told Leviathan in, in <clears throat> Psalms, and they used it to say, well, our God's the one who holds back chaos and creates order, right? right. But then in Genesis, they deliberately leave it out. I think there's a polemical reason is going on there. They're, at that point, they're contrasting themselves rather than finding similarities. They're contrasting right. themselves with the prevailing Egyptian and Canaanite and maybe some Babylonian thought forms because they're saying, look, our God is so awesome that he doesn't struggle. Right. He's the waters are subdued, <laughs> and the dragons. The, the dragons. It, it, Bible verses translate in Genesis one. They translate dragon tanin. They translate it as sea monsters, but it's actually the same word for sea dragons, right? right. So, and it describes them as frolicking in the waters. Right. And I think at that point, he's the the writer's saying whether it's Moses or whoever is saying, well, our God, you know what you call the sea dragon of chaos is like a d domesticated creature to our God, right? You know, he just creates it all and it, it does his will. So our God is so awesome that he doesn't have to fight anything to create. Yet in other places, it does use that poetically. So my point there is that we as, as Christians, I don't want to be afraid to face the similarities in the Bible with other ancient religions because there's also very, very important differences Sure. That make it stand out. Well, well, there's also the uh, uh, now the word uh, theosophy has been uh, been kind of uh, appropriated, but the uh, early church fathers like uh, Origen used to talk about how the religions of the pagans uh, prepared the way for the word to come. That they had some kind of maybe a teaching that they distorted. Or that uh, maybe they got it from somewhere else, but they appropriated it in their own way. But, but there, there was this primordial faith that was probably there at the time of, of Noah that may have, uh, you know, by the telling of the stories, maybe had, had changed or something. But uh, there was this common belief at one time. And I think you kind of take that in. I, I, I'm not too sure because I didn't quite finish. But, I, but I, I'm imagining that you did because yeah. this is something that's you know, not new. It's just that we really don't have a word for it anymore. But it, the word used to be it was a theosophy. Huh. And this was, a, this was a, uh, an idea of you know, what the truth was at, at a different time, maybe. We don't know the religion that Noah had. There's not very much that the Bible says about it. So that's the problem, in, in a way. But we, we do see how it emerges in Sumeria uh, with the dawn of, of writing. And that we do see that it also influences other places as well. Well, look, this is one of those things that frightens some evangelical Christians they don't want to face, and that is, right. um, I, I got news for you. You can believe Moses wrote the Pentateuch, and I think he might have, and maybe it was yeah, edited sure. later and changed. Uh, that's that's the old traditional view, but I still think that there's good arguments for that. I'm kind of on the side of Moses' authorship of the Pentateuch, but it, it it's not right. necessary to me. However, those who do want to you know stick to that, and they're afraid to consider that Moses may have used sources. But here's the right. here's intellectual honesty that even if you believe the Bible is the word of God, you have to face the truth, folks. And the Bible itself says, and I have this in my one of my appendices, um, throughout the Old Testament, there's about 20-some references 
to other sources that the Bible writers use. They say, I got this from this book. I got this from the sure. Wars of Yahweh. I got this from the prophet Gad. And these aren't in the Bible. And so my point is, is that you have to be honest and face the fact that the Bible was not dictated to Moses or whoever wrote it from heaven like the Muslims claim the Quran right. did, which obviously wasn't because of, it's got so many problems with it, right? But oh, we never claimed that. It wasn't dictated. <laughs> you know, Moses or the writer used some sources, but he gave his own right. theological viewpoint. And how he used those sources, okay, that's all speculation and, and you know, that can be debate, debated forever. But the if the Bible itself says it uses sources and there's indications that it does, that doesn't discredit the authority of it, you know? No, so stop being, no. Christians, stop worrying about that, you know? Well, that's that's kind of the thing. And, and, and bringing up the uh, Quran is a rather interesting point because th what you have there is you have a, a holy book that is... Uh, holy in heaven and holy on earth, but nobody reads it. Yeah. Um, and, and with the Bible, it's in our hands and should be in our hearts. Uh, but, but the thing is, is that we, what we teach isn't that it, it, you know, it's just sent down like lightning or something, that, that it actually it, it's, it's breathed into uh, the writers. Uh, which and those, is what, writers, uh, those writers were men of their time, which means they exactly. had the imagination of Canaanites, of Egyptians, they they had that background, so they what they did is they used the same reference points of their era as we would sure. in ours to craft and explain their theology, and that's why you're going to see narrative similarities. I mean, there are many. I'm sorry, there are passages in the Bible that describe Yahweh in terms exactly the same as Baal, the storm god, was described in Canaan. Yeah. Now, this is, this is where we, we can't be afraid to face these realities because if we run from them, then we're ultimately destroying our faith because it's a fact and we're going to throw out our faith if we can't face these facts, right. see? Right. Uh, but the liberal side says, ah, yeah, see? So they just stole from Canaanites and swapped the name Yahweh in it. So they're just borrowing and evolving from other religions. No, that's not the only interpretation. There's another way of seeing it, and that way is, well, look, I as a Christian would write a vampire story, but I would spin it with my own Christian worldview. Well, that's what they were sure. doing, too. The Jews would, were saying, basically, look, storm god imagery is what people understood, because in Canaan, they were agricultural, and they lived by the storms. They needed the rains and such to survive, rather than in Egypt, where it was river language, right? So when they come into into the promised land, you see in the Deuteronomy and new Numbers, you start to see the storm god language. Why? Because they're basically saying, look, this is how people think. They understand God and storm god language. Well, guess what? Your god, Baal, isn't the storm god. Our god is because he's the creator of all. He's the one who brings the storms. He rides on the clouds and, right. and, and exactly. with a mighty arm. You know, I mean, they're using common language, but that doesn't mean they're evolving. That means they're subverting it. That means they're saying... Baal isn't God. Sure. Yahweh is God. That's, right. that's all. Yeah. And that's that's yeah, what I do. Message appropriate. That's what I do. As well. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. I, I'm going to have to be the party pooper. I'm sorry, man. <laughs> I can't believe it. This is this time has gone so quickly. But would you like to see this in uh, movies? Is it ever going to get there? Oh, I'd love to, of course. But I'm not planning on it because they would be so huge and expensive that. It, they would have to become million bestsellers before, so definitely right. go out and buy the books. But <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, I do want to tell people though. Every little bit helps. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
So if it does become a million bestseller, then then I might have a chance. But you know, they're already I've already heard that people are optioning uh, other books on King David, and and Ridley Scott may do a King David movie, so that might be out of the coffers already. But um, if, for people who want to know more about the Chronicles of the Nephilim, go to chroniclesofthenephilim.com. And I have a bunch of free articles, a bunch of free cool book trailers and author videos where I explain things. And there's a lot of artwork that I that I called together. You know, you can see pictures of the characters from each of the novels and stuff. And you can get all the information on Chronicles of the Nephilim on the whole on the whole series there and, and watch some cool free stuff as well. Oh, that's really cool. Uh, Brian, this has really been a blessing, I have to tell you. I've enjoyed it thoroughly. I've learned so much. I hope it inspires confidence rather than, you know, kind of just people thinking, oh, this is just a bunch of hooey or whatever. But I think the balance that you've found is the thing that that people can take some kind of uh, trust in. Yes, it has got that fantasy-type genre, but the thing is there's also the background research that balances it all out and also puts it on a very solid platform. So you're not in this just to kind of, tell a story but I think no. what you're really wanting to do is to to show it in a, in a way that um, actually I would hope people wants to go, want to go back and read their Bibles and say hang on a minute yeah. I didn't see that in my Bible sure. let me go back and read that and, yeah. um, and I, I really hope it does have that effect I'm sorry, I'm just I'm speaking on your behalf. I don't know, what do you hope it would do? Amen. But, um, Amen. I, I, would, I would certainly hope that it, it does that and, and really has people questioning a little bit more and saying, oh, hmm, I never thought of that before. And, yeah, um, yeah. but it's, it's been Thanks a so much for great blessing to have you on. <laughs> Anything on you, on your side there, Kivy? No, I think you said it very nicely. Uh, and, uh, yeah, and... and that's scholarship. I, I, I really do admire the scholarship you put into this. It's, uh, it's refreshing, really. Thank you for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed our show. You can find us on the web at www.lightflintradio.com. If you'd like to contact us, you can email us at mail at lightflintradio.com. That's M-A-I-L at lightflintradio.com.